If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Wednesday, August the 5th, and you're listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. Joining me via Zoom today from somewhere here in Northern California, an unseasonably cool and cloudy day here in Northern California, I might add, is my colleague, Dr. Timothy Kane. He is the Hoover Institution's J.P. Conte Fellow in Immigration Studies, and that is going to be our topic today, immigration reform, the prospect of any kind of progress between now and Election Day. Tim, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Bill, and it's great to uh, talk with you. Yeah, so it's a very funny aside. Anytime I talk to you, I reminded Tim of my friend Richard Reed, uh, spelled R-E-I-D, which is the same name of the shoe bomber from years ago. And Richard Reed, my friend, was living a very kind of normal life until that guy decided to blow up an airplane with a shoe. And so for the next year, my friend Richard Reed was called the bomber, which as he told me was very old. And I bring this up, Tim, because it occurs to me that you've dodged at least two bullets in your life, my friend. One is, uh, and they both have to do with one person, another Tim Kaine, the former governor of Virginia, now Virginia senator. Uh, In 2008, Barack Obama wanted to put him on his ticket very much, but uh, he was talked out of it and instead he picked Joe Biden. So Tim, you were afforded the opportunity not being confused with that guy for eight years as vice president. And then in 2016, you dodged a second bullet where Tim Kaine did end up on the ticket with Hillary Clinton. So <laughs> we, could be, we could be sitting here right now with you complaining about eight to 12 years of being confused with the guy from Virginia. And Bill, you may not know this, but uh, CNN put up my photo the day that Hillary Clinton selected uh, uh, Tim Kaine as her running mate, and it was up for 24 hours. So I had friends... You're coming out of the woodwork saying, I didn't, I didn't know you were a Democrat. Yeah, it was quite, quite a fun day. I hope you freeze frame that. It's a, it's a joke from that skit, Boston Kids on Saturday Night Live. Tell me you got that. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We did. They gave me, and it's CNN, thank goodness, and their level of competence. So they, uh, yeah, they, they kept it open there for 24 hours for screenshots. Fantastic. So, Tim, you wrote a column, a July column for Immigration Economic Recovery Symposium, the title of which is Immigration is the Ultimate Security. And that word security caught my eye. I've heard immigration, Tim, discussed in terms of economics. I've heard it talked in terms of humanitarian issues. Security, though, is something new to me. Explain what you're getting at when you say that immigration is the ultimate security. Well, yeah, Bill, uh, I often have that debate about the, the immigration strengths that, that uh, we get in America, being a nation of immigrants, and they tend to be focused on the economics. And there's some, you know, back and forth about short-term wage effects, but the long-term positives for the size of our economy, and, and that matters in national security issues, how, how big your military is. I realize, though, that it's the security aspect of and the security advantages are a huge geopolitical force in our favor. And so I'm working on a book to that effect. And this article is really my first stab at getting some of the research out into the public conversation. Okay, so just give the listeners just a 30 second, one minute um, dive into what you're writing about here. Well, so... Americans were acutely aware, particularly viewed credit Harry Truman with uh, recognizing that the Soviets were embarrassing us because uh, the states had a very restrictive and frankly racist policy. The Chinese Exclusion Act of the 1880s wasn't really fully repealed until 1965. So Truman agitated, Kennedy agitated, and 
Lyndon Johnson is the one for national security reasons had to change the perception of America as not having a racist immigration policy. And that's now you know, brought in what I'd say the three strategic advantages of immigration are. One is brawn, just raw manpower that we have. We can talk about the strength that that gave us in World War II being a nation of immigrants. Two is brains and everything from Eisenhower to the hunt for AI research now, we need all the brain power we can get to, to keep that cutting edge. And then lastly, bravery. Um, so I was really surprised to find out that uh, a disproportionate number of our medals of honor have gone to first generation American immigrants. And I think if you count first and second generation bill, it was a majority of the medals of honor during the Civil War were given out to, you know, the Irish and the Germans fighting for the North. And so, yeah, th there are all sorts of reasons that if we want to stay a geopolitical power and, you know, defeat our rivals, we need to maintain that openness to immigration. Tim Gallup came out with a poll in uh, late May, early June, and uh, it had a really interesting finding, which was that 34% of Americans would prefer to see immigration in the United States increased. So 34%, that was up from 27% a year ago. Uh, according to Gallup, Tim, this is the highest support for expanding immigration since Gallup has been studying this trend since 1965. Meanwhile, Tim had found the percentage favoring decreased immigration fell to a new low of 28%, 36 um, percent saying it stay at a present level. So Americans seem warmer to the concept of immigration. Now, I would note, Tim, that this poll came out before the Trump administration's decision to halt issuing any uh, new H-1B visas. It also preceded the Supreme Court's recent ruling that invalidated the Trump administration's actions to end uh, DACA, Deferred Action right. Childhood Rivals Act. But you just look at that Gallup poll, and it would appear that Americans actually have a positive feeling about immigration right now. To, to what would you owe that? Well, you know what's really interesting, Bill, is that Gallup number, and I've, I've, I'm very familiar with it, and that poll goes back decades, that, that was really a 7% number. Only 7% of Americans historically wanted to increase the amount of immigration. Now, you know, there's some debate among academics what that means, because we've already got such a high level of immigration. We, we allow more immigrants, legal immigrants in this country, 1 million a year mm -hmm. than any other country. So to increase that's a pretty big ask. But we've seen that number stay at 7% and now suddenly rise to 37 in, in short order. Um, I think some people might say this is a backlash that Trump overreached and people don't like this perception of themselves. And to the president's credit, he always focused his ire and was trying to motivate the base uh, because they didn't like illegal immigration and the sense of a loss of control. I think there's still support for that. But when you come to legal immigration, I think Americans have finally made up their minds. They like it and they want more of it. Right. So today is 90 days uh, from the election. That's uh, now one day less than 13 weeks from Election Day, 90 days straight. Uh, Tim, the president's hinted he'll sign something, his words, major with regard to DACA. Um, what do you think he's thinking? <laughs> I, Always a $64,000 question, but when he says he's going to do something major, and I assume that means with the stroke of a pen, what can he really do? Well. I just feel like we've heard that too too much, and I think it's uh, uh, some political posturing. Look, the biggest news in, in practically in immigration, so let's go small picture, is that Supreme Court decision. And I was really surprised. Um, it was a little bit... Um, yeah. Explain exactly what the court did, Tim. Well, so this goes back to Barack Obama's decision to establish a program for these dreamers, kids that were brought to America when they were younger through, quote unquote, no fault of their own. They became illegal immigrants. 
um, shouldn't we grant them some sort of a legal status? And Obama, for you know, most of his term, said he couldn't do anything about it unilaterally. That was unconstitutional. He needed Congress to act. Well, then you know he he did something unilaterally, and it created a political football. Um, you may remember we did some polling on this that most Americans and most experts thought it was a good policy, but horribly done and made things more divisive and more polarized. Right. That was our last podcast you and I did. We did it May last year. You did yeah. it with Doug Rivers, you gov. Right. So, so look, the president said he took a unilateral action to create this program. I'm going to take a unilateral action to end the program. And bizarrely, um, the Supreme Court said he couldn't do that. Now, their logic was, well, he didn't, the administration didn't go through the proper process. Um, I, I think it was a bad decision, but they left the door open that the president can repeal DACA um, and require these children to, to be deported. And the president said he doesn't want to do that. President Trump said he doesn't want to do that. So, you know, maybe he will try to do one of these surprisingly, you know, what do they call that, triangulate and go to the center moves. Mm -hmm. But um, I think COVID is really the bigger issue and it's going to overwhelm any conversation about immigration policy during the silly season of elections. What do you sense the Trump administration wants to do here, Tim? Because you, the president, as you mentioned, is kind of bipolar on this topic. He, he one day talks tough, the next day he talks about trying to be accommodating or, or inclusive. Uh, you have Stephen Miller, uh, his very outspoken aide on immigration, about the most hawkish man in Washington on immigration. Uh, but within the Republican Party, there's always the Chamber of Commerce streak that looks at this as kind of a business yep. issue. But what, what do you really sense the White House would like to get done? Well, yeah, and, and you, you know this, Bill, White Houses are made up of a lot of internal factions. Sometimes they get along, sometimes they're, you know, secretly at war with each other, and sometimes they're openly at war with each other. And on immigration policy, Miller, Stephen Miller, who you identified, has been a very strong advocate, kind of an immigration czar, and he, he tends to be more anti-immigrant on the theory that you can motivate the base, that you're protecting America for Americans. But the base is really only so big on this issue, and I don't think they're going to get any more motivated. And maybe some of the other people in the administration are convincing the president, you know, you're going to alienate too many people. Why don't you do something surprising that, that lurches a little bit back toward the center, um, get the uh, economically minded Chamber of Commerce types uh, realigned with you? And so, you know, he could do that. Uh, it's the liberals who have been really the fringe group. Uh, pushing for open borders, no sense of having any border really control at all um, that, that are in a logically untenable position. That's interesting. Now, if Donald Trump were to give a speech on immigration, Tim Kaine, and he wanted to point to accomplishments, what would he point to? Well, I think he could say, you know, he redirected funds and he built the wall. Um, he might even try to say he got Mexico to pay for it. That, that's been sort of one of the funnier um, claims he was making that he'd get Mexico to, to pay for the wall, which they won't, but he might call import duties through his new free trade agreement with Mexico um, the source of the funds. But, you know, they, they've, they haven't finished the wall. The, the real secret in Washington, D.C. is the, the wall's largely done in, in most of the areas where it's easy to cross from Mexico to the U.S. It's mainly along the Rio Grande and in the mountainous areas where you really can't build a wall anyway. But, you know, he's, he can say he's made efforts there and he's redirected millions and millions of dollars and, and he'd be right about that. Okay, so he can say promises kept. Promises kept. I think he can say, and Biden will say, no, you didn't, we stopped you, but whatever. Um, okay. that, that's, that's what he'll try to claim. 
Um, what they really have done that I don't know is worth bragging about is reduced dramatically the number of refugees that America has welcomed. Mm -hmm. And that's not how independent mainstream Americans think of themselves. We, we tend to think of ourselves as generous. These were Cold War policies. Even now in the Middle East, you'll find Iran isn't taking in refugees. Saudi Arabia isn't taking in refugees. Turkey is, and the United States is, and a lot of European countries are. And it would be probably wise to, to uh, embrace that and say he's going to reverse course on it, but it may be too late. Okay, so you said the magic word, the old Groucho Marx, uh, the duck drops down, you get $100. Uh, you said Biden, so let's talk about Joe Biden, if you Oh, will. no. Uh, so um, nominee-elect, uh, nominee-in-waiting Joe Biden last month promised, quote, on day one of his presidency to, quote, send a bill to Congress that creates a clear roadmap to citizenship for dreamers and 11 million undocumented people who are already strengthening our nation. So there you have it, Tim. He's promised on day one to send a bill to Congress to do pathway to citizenship. Um, couple questions here, Tim. Um, I know you can't read the crystal balls to what 2021 looks like exactly, but it seems to me that you have a couple ways to go here if you're Joe Biden, if indeed you are the 46th president of the United States. One is, yeah, you can introduce that bill or at least have somebody in Congress introduce it on your behalf and decide that this is going to be a big muscular fight of your first two years in office, a defining fight, which may end up defining the midterm election. But also at the same time, or maybe conversely, Tim, with the stroke of a pen, and not to belittle Joe Biden, but he's 78 years old and there's a lot of energy to be conserved, but rather than giving speeches to write things with the stroke of a pen, he could sign executive orders reversing Trump actions. Yeah. And I think they'll do a lot of that, although, you know, it may be very quiet. Um, the left laid, made a lot of noise about the Muslim ban. Do you remember the Muslim ban where Trump had supposedly said Muslims couldn't come into the country? It was right. really, Bill, a failed state ban. There were a few countries that are active supporters of terrorists or really out of control. I think North Korea was one, not a terrorist and not a Muslim state. And, and, and the president has every right to decide which countries we will accept immigrants from and refugees from. So some of those things he won't change. But to return to your original question, what will be in that first day bill? I would be pretty excited to see um, legislation that could be put together in 24 hours because that's exactly what we need to get away from are these big comprehensive bills that fail and are just finger pointing exercises. So if President Biden wants to do, you know, some common sense things where the American people pretty overwhelmingly support it, that's great. And what I really like is there's there's a little part of that quote from him where he said pathway to citizenship. Right. Now, there are a lot of people on the hard left that will push Biden to just grant them outright citizenship right away. I think it's a really positive sign that maybe Biden would be a president that wants to, to work uh, as a centrist. Right. He's so, talking about background checks. You have to learn the language. You have to take an oath to the Constitution of this country if you want to get on that pathway. Right. So the, the, the words he used exactly were clear roadmap. Uh, so mm -hmm. he's, he's going to lay out conditions. Uh, but here's the question, Tim, if you're going to do immigration reform. Now, I'm going to. So let's let's do the scenario this way. Let's assume Biden is elected president. I read the polls. He's ahead right now. So for the sake of argument, let's make him the president. And for the sake of argument, Tim, let's give him a Democratic Congress, because I think otherwise with a divided Congress, unless they're going to bring in the filibuster, change that in the Senate, um, probably Democrats can't get anything done there. So let's give him a, a Senate and a, Congress, and a House to work with. So he has control of Congress. So the two of them can sit down together and actually get something done. But here's the question, Tim, and I, I guess the phrase I'd use here would be skinny reform. 
Um, is it possible, Tim, to introduce a skinny reform bill, which I think what you're suggesting is kind of a very narrowly tailored reform measure to go through Congress? Is it possible, Tim, to get that through Congress? Because it seems to me as it starts going through, you're going to start having carve-outs and exceptions and add-ons. And before you know it, you're looking at that dread board comprehensive. Right. I, I think a, a real nightmare for the Biden presidency would be to start out with uh, control of both the House and the Senate by his Democratic Party. Mm. Barack Obama had that, didn't he, Bill? So Barack Obama had it. George W. Bush sort of had it. It was complicated his first two years because Jim Jeffords, a Republican, flipped. But he basically had it in his first two years. And Bill Clinton had it as well. That's why I mentioned Tim, because it's what's happening in politics. We swap out presidents and then we swap out Congresses. So each president comes in and it's their game, their rules for two years. And and, and I think that was one of the great criticisms of the Obama presidency and Nancy Pelosi's speakership is to for them to say they care so much about immigration and, and why isn't anything getting done? Well, they had two years with total control and they didn't get anything done. It's very hard for any party to do um, a lopsided bill that, that, that then get all the votes because they have to appease their fringe. Whereas if it was a you know bare Republican majority in the House, Biden would have an excuse to say, we're going to have to do a skinny bill. That's the only way we can get this done. And it's time to get things done. So I, I think he'd be better off, frankly, um, to, to achieving some of the things that he wants to achieve and he's claimed um, if he wins the presidency uh, with some bipartisanship. By the same token, I think it was President Trump who was willing to work with Democrats when he was elected. But Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi made a pretty cynical calculation not to work with him on anything, um, to declare him illegitimate. And so I've been, frankly, I'm a pro-immigration conservative, but very frustrated that Democrats haven't been sincerely interested in getting anything done to change, to strengthen our country. So let's have a little fun here, Tim. Let's now go into a very bizarre alternate universe where in January of 2021, you were invited to the White House. The White House decides we want to do something on immigration. And they stumble upon this guy, Tim Kaine, who's written a lot about immigration for the Hoover Institution. They've done a little digging into him. They found out that he's from Ohio. So he's from the middle of America and he's run for office before. And he's kind of a realpolitik person who thinks pretty practically. So I think, you know, this would be a good guy to bring in and talk about what exactly we should be doing here. So Tim, my friend, you get to go to the White House and sit down with the powers that be running the 46th presidency, and you get to give them advice on what their priorities should be. So what are the priorities? When we talk about immigration reform, Tim, what are the priorities? Is it the pathway? Is it the problem with the current documents? Is it the workforce issue? What exactly should be Biden's goals here? Yeah, well, Bill, I'd say that the thing I'd want to emphasize is continuity. More is right with our immigration policy than wrong. Um, the, the problems about illegal immigration are, are you know, distressing. Um, but, you know, one of the things I pointed out in that article that you, you kindly mentioned, you know, immigrants didn't attack America on 9-11. They, more immigrants died and were killed by these terrorists who were not immigrants to the U.S. They were here on uh, student visitor visas. Um, so I, I would emphasize to, to the Biden White House, just as I would emphasize and I have to people in the Trump White House, the, the way to find um, consensus on this issue is to talk about the real challenges we face, our rivals around the world. And I, I point to China and immigrants are going to help us win and our values win in the end. So let's get back to a robust refugee policy. Let's bring in every Hong Kong 
um, citizen that's being repressed as refugees, let them come be scientists here. Um, so I think that would, you know, I would just argue a framing, first of all, let's put this in a national security frame. And that can be pretty persuasive to a lot of, um, you know, middle Americans who really aren't that political, but they, they do worry about China and they do want to keep our economy strong. Would also give them some safe ground to maybe pick off some Republican votes. So Tim, I'm going to give you four areas of immigration reform here, and I want you to do two things. Number one, prioritize them, one through four, one being best step and four being the least urgent of these steps. And then secondly, under each category, just tell me briefly what you'd like to do. So if you want to write these down as I speak them out, go ahead. So category number one, Tim, I have the undocumented population that Biden referenced. So those undocumented undocumented, uh, uh, people living in the United States, 11 million, whatever the figure it's thrown out is, what to do about them. So that's question number one, the undocumented undocumented population. Category number two, Tim, workforce. How an immigrant population factors into the U.S. workforce. You mentioned H-1B visas, for example. Category three, Tim, border security and enforcement of immigration laws. And then finally, the fourth category, Tim, who gets to come here moving forward? Okay. Wow. Um, so, so give me one through four. So tell me which one is at the head of that line. And under each one, just tell me quickly what you'd want to do. Undocumented workers, I would basically recommend a, a legal status, but not a pathway to citizenship. That's but, something that can be but, earned but, over time. But you think that comes first? Well, I don't think it comes. I was going in your order. So uh, <laughs> I want you to tell me which one you think should be done first. Let's get back, let's get back to the idea of Biden doing a skinny reform and what he, he needs to hit first. Oh, I see. Well, so what was number four, Bill? Because I got undocumented workforce, border security, and... Yeah, number one was undocumented population. Number two was workforce, Tim. Number three, border security slash enforcement. Number four, who gets to come here moving forward? Okay. Well, I would go with number four. And I would say it'd be really smart to pass a bill, uh, to put forward a skinny bill that welcomes scientists, like the Soviet Scientists Act uh, that, that you may remember, or after Tiananmen Square, an act that would allow any Chinese students in the U.S. to stay in the U.S. instead of having to go back. Um, right. These were really good uh, acts of Congress that, that the world could see that we were welcoming people from oppressed countries. Right. I would right. say let's welcome every scientist here and have that be so, you know, the thinnest possible legislation. And you put together a working coalition in Congress. Mm-hmm. Now that, that is a massive achievement where you isolate your fringes. You know, nothing's ever pure enough for the far left or the far right. So who gets to come? Hey, scientists, engineers, um, certainly from refugee countries more than ever. And in fact, Bill, I, I would make that standards based, not numerically based. So I was about to ask you on standards, Tim. So, for example, language, is that a standard? Yeah, absolutely. Look, if you if you can speak fluent English, um, if you have an advanced scientific degree from a from a university that we recognize as a legit university, um, why put a numeric limit on those people if they want to be Americans? They want to invent technologies and companies. Let them be American technologies and American companies. So that would be a really neat shift in the way we think about immigration as standards instead of quotas. Okay. But is the president throwing huddled masses under the bus by doing that? Well, and yeah, then I think you come back to, okay, what are the standards? Because I actually believe we have more scientists in our country who foreign born who were refugees and children. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I tell the story of my friend, France Hong, one of the top graduates of West Point, fought for this country in Afghanistan. He came here as a, you know, two-year-old Vietnamese refugee. 
um, in, in the mid 70s. So, you know, we need to recognize that we get strength from the huddled masses as well. But uh, Bill, the point is establish the principle of standards. If somebody doesn't have a criminal background record, certainly if they speak English, um, they're, they're not, you know, disease carrying, then, you know, those are sort of historic norms of screening that we did anyway. Right. Um, maybe you get away from setting caps on who gets in as long as they meet the right standards and they're going to contribute to our society. And what kind of visa do they get, Tim? What, how long do they get to stay? I, I think, you know, we have a pretty normal, um, five, it's, you might think of it as a waiting period. Someone can get a green card and come in, but they can't actually take the oath of citizenship until they're here for five years and, and uh, aren't deported, aren't committing crimes. Those are good. Now I'm getting back to your listers. So I'd say who gets to come is sort of an easy layup first. Right. The mistake bill is saying we've got to get the border secure before anything else gets done. So well, I would put that. I would put that. I would assume, I would assume a d- Democratic president and Democratic Congress would stay away from border security. That just that's they're going to try to be as anti non-Trump as they can, and they're just not going to talk tough. Well, no matter what president I'd be talking to, I would say you can declare victory on this. We right. the, the wall has been built. The Secure Fence Act. I think it was 2005 or maybe it was 2006. Mm-hmm. That passed. They built the border wall. You know, it's not, com- it's not complete. It doesn't, and it's not perfect. People still try to break through. But as you know, most illegal immigrants aren't coming through that wall anywhere. They're coming on legal visas and then overstaying. Right. So, you know, we've, we've done a good job. I would, I would uh, you know, you can always get better at it. We need probably focus more on internal security and making a national um, E-Verify program require that nationally, I, I might recommend. So that, leaves that, us then with, that leaves us then, Tim, with workforce, which we kind of covered, but probably should talk about a little bit more. But then the big Megillah, which is undocumented population. Yeah, and I think undocumented is a little bit difficult, but it's it's kind of solving itself. And the, the DACA uh, solution is one that didn't offer citizenship to the undocumented. It offered a renewable legal status. I think it was three years renewable, right? So... Right hey, turn that into some legislation. It doesn't promise citizenship. It just says you can come out of the shadows, you can go to college, you can pay taxes, and then you get in the same line with everyone else for citizenship. So that's actually pretty easy. And that's how I would handle it. And I wouldn't probably put it first because it's you know controversial and contentious. Well, and the workforce, the workforce one, I'd come back to that same principle. H-1Bs right now have a pretty strict limit of about 65,000 H-1B visas a year. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we limit having high-skilled workers come here, pay taxes, and not get welfare. That sounds like a pretty good deal for everybody. Right, I would agree. So the undocumented population challenge, I think, would simply be this. If, if there is a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress, the tendency is always to swing for the fences. Yeah. Especially if you look at history and think we may not have this for very long. So you're going to have people within your caucus who are going to push very hard for citizenship, just want to go past the extending the state. Why don't we make these people citizens? And so that's going, to be, that's going to be the challenge for Biden to decide if he really wants to take that hill and fight. But the question is, Tim, is that really the same kind of political hot potato that it was two, four, six, eight, ten years ago? Good point. And, and the weird thing is, um, you know, our, our colleague George Schultz, um, who, who's you know, seen quite a bit, he, he's the one who told me Mexican immigration is actually net negative. Uh, and it's been that way for it's at least five years now, you know, the the data we have goes back a bit, but the 
nature of immigration demographically is going to change. Fewer and fewer Latin Americans and more Chinese, Indians, people from Asia that are trying to come to the U.S. That's the that's the next wave. So worrying about you know people hopping the border despite the um, you know the caravan issue, which was uh, specifically focused on Honduran and El Salvadorans. I think that's going to become less relevant during the next four-year presidency, um, whether that's Trump's last four years or Biden's first four. Well, I think there's something else that will be at play too, Tim. In this world we've just designed where Joe Biden is a president and Democrats rule Capitol Hill, uh, the Republican Party is undergoing an identity crisis and hmm. trying to decide what happened, how do we get to this point, how do we get out of this point, which means, Tim, you're going to have kind of a repeat of 2015 where you're going to have at least 10 or 15 men and women all claiming to be the heart and soul of the Republican Party, defining in their own way what it is to be a Republican in 2021 moving forward. And immigration, Tim, is going to be part of that conversation because they'll build off a of Trump and say, well, this president's mistake was he was too harsh on immigration. We have to be the opposite. So, so here's a question, Tim. How, how bleeding hearted do you see the next generation of Republican presidential candidates being? Well, when it comes to that question of the Republican identity crisis, I'm eager to help with that, right? Yes. So I, but, I and think- And done that feel the pain, right? <laughs> I, I, I think this is a great opportunity. I, there's a line that I hope, you know, when I'm, you know, in 70 years, uh, when I'm buried, Bill, um, that they'll remember it was Tim Kaine who said that there is no Trumpism, there's only Trump. And, right. and I don't mean that in a necessarily negative way, it's just that he's not creating an ideological legacy and he never wanted to, he's a deal maker, he's transactional. Right. But as far as what's the core identity of the Republican Party, you know, it's it's wide open in right. the post-Trump era. And frankly, I think it's more going to be defined as the Republicans, in a sense, are losing their minds. To quote my friends who are Democrats, Democrats yeah. are losing their minds, sorry, not Republicans. The, the identity politic takeover of that party, um, where everything's based on grievance, has really horrified a lot of my centrist Democratic friends. Right. But I think the immigration issue fits perfectly as a counter narrative where Republicans say, look, we don't believe in racial bean counting. We want to treat everyone equally with our immigration policy and recognize we're all the sons and daughters of immigrants. And we're this new people, this new race of people um, called the Americans. And that will really be a great unifying force, not only for the Republican party, but for the nation. Yeah, I guess, Tim, I should modify that question a little bit because I, I, I give a lot of talks about elections and I always describe the 2016 election as sort of like uh, two football players colliding at midfield. These would be the parties I'm talking about, but two football players colliding at midfield and they both stagger off the field with concussions and mm. they're both just trying to figure out you know, what day is it, who am I, where am I? And that, which sideline to go to? <laughs> which sideline to go to, but that you have Republicans maybe soon asking the question of what the heck are we all about? But you can just easily flip this on Democrats because, look, Joe Biden is 77 going on 78, Tim. He is a he is a Band-Aid, a stopgap solution, unless you think he has eight years in the tank, which I don't think is a president. So that's why we're so keenly interested in his running mate, for example. Right. That, that that individual will have the inside track on the nomination, maybe be the 47th president if it occurs. But the de Democrats, likewise, are trying to figure out who exactly defines their party and what defines their party. And I think this, again, gets back to immigration and the idea of just how hard the Democrats want to push on immigration and how much they want to make that a defining idea, principle, what it is to be a Democrat in 2020. You know, Bill, I'll tell you, the 2020 census may actually become a bit of an issue as, as the party struggle to figure out who they are. Why and so? there's, I think what, what, what will surprise some Democrats when they build a party of identities, 
and you know grievances and who gets what redistribution based on you know with the reparations debate if that heats up that doesn't end well because who how do you tell uh, a, an iranian american immigrant that he's considered white according to the u.s census and therefore he owes reparations and that, that's a really hard question the, the fact is um there is no massive monocultural identity that's ethnically based. Mm -hmm. And I think it's Egyptians, everyone from the Middle East, um, Iraqi Americans, Iranian Americans, they're all considered white by the census. And as those populations sort of feel, they don't like affirmative action, which tells their children that they're, um, you know, have too much privilege. It's right. just, a, it's a lot of nonsense. And the Democrats have created a bit of a monster um, with this that I don't think is going to end well for their party. A unifying message that recognizes the dignity of individuals is the, what America's always been, and I think it's, it's future as well. What do you identify, Tim, as if you emigrate here from Johannesburg, but you are white, but from South Africa? <laughs> well, you're African. I remember, actually, I remember I think Georgetown went through like a legal issue, I think, where, where, some, where a white uh, person from South Africa applied as African-American and the college would not recognize them as such. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's things like that where I, I, you know, John Roberts, I believe it was, had a quote that says, if you want to stop uh, racism and you know counting people by race. We'll stop counting people by race. That's probably going to be a central issue of the 2020s, and it may break the Democratic Party. Where I think it will unify the Republican Party. Okay, so question for you, Tim. Uh, we may or may not have presidential debates. I know there there are people writing uh, mischievously that Biden should avoid the debates. This is the whole idea of keep Biden in the closet as long as he can. He's <laughs> been yeah. off the trail. Less you see, the better off he is. And you look at the poll numbers; it's hard to argue with that. But he's going to have to come out and debate. I don't think he could duck the debates. Uh, so let's assume he is on a debate stage with Donald Trump. And let's assume it's in your Ohio. I think actually the first one's in Cleveland or, or one of them was in Cleveland. Um, yeah, yeah. Does, it was supposed to be in Notre Dame and then Notre Dame just said no. So um, they, they need, to, need to find a host. Cleveland supporting it now. So, <laughs> which of course you have two guys in their 70s. That's an interesting uh, sponsor to have. But uh, here's the question, Tim. You have Donald Trump on a debate stage with uh, Joe Biden, and Donald Trump is clearly trying to hold on to states he picked off in 2016, the, the Blue Wall in the upper Midwest, uh, not Ohio, but Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And so he has to find ways to have Joe Biden disconnect with the, with the flyover America. Mm -hmm. In 2016, Trump very effectively used immigration. Uh, as that part of that wedge. And it was part of, it was part of border security, but it was also, Tim, also a cultural conversation about this is the America you want to see. Um, and it was very effective that message. Do you think Trump in 2020, since he is now not, not so much a notion as he is an entity, do you think Trump in 2020 is going to try to do to Biden what he did to Hillary and the Democrats with immigration? I I don't know. I really think that Biden, uh, I think they're both going to be very good at the debate, to be honest. Um, Joe Biden had some bad moments, but he's very personable and he had some good moments in the primary debates. Right. Uh, but I think Donald Trump's going to be just fantastic. And you'll probably see his numbers rise um, after those debates. But I don't think they'll focus on immigration because it's, it's, it's not new information. What's new and what's really um, a dividing line now where, where you've got non-political people that are really angry at the government is they're not letting their kids back in school, right? Why isn't the government letting our kids back in school? And I think the um, teachers unions are not doing Joe Biden a favor here. And I bet the, the, the Trump 
campaign team's going to figure out, do their polling, that that is a very sensitive issue he can hammer away at. Yeah, so, that's, um, that, so this is the other question to me, Tim. So what you're suggesting, I think you're absolutely right, there are shinier objects for Trump. Right, right, right. So you're right. Um, the teachers' unions are a shiny object. Uh, city mayors and what's going on with urban unrest right now is a very shiny object. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, uh, and the squad, that's a shiny object. Uh, but I guess the question, Tim, is immigration to those voters, those voters who decided last election may decide this one, is immigration still a shiny object or have they moved on to something else? Well, Bill, it's less an issue of immigration than it is an issue of um, identity politics coming back to bite the Democrats, that they created this monster of you know, the white supremacy movement. And telling any, any people that the color of their skin makes them bad doesn't end well. So yeah, there's a lot of resentment in the Midwest and in Michigan with very poor families that feel left behind and yet are being told that everything was their fault. Um, and these are not racist people. They're just people that were worried about paying the mortgage. So I think Biden actually is a, is a really, really strong candidate. He, he can talk often about his roots in Scranton, Pennsylvania, in the Midwest. I, I, I don't think that argument's going to be as effective. Interesting. Uh, and he may pick a running mate who has an immigration story to tell. Yeah, yeah, could be. Um, I think Joe Biden might want to stay away from communist sympathizers. That also is not going to go down well in Florida and swing states. So. Right, that's a vote against Karen Bass, I think, is what you're getting. I was hinting at that, yeah. The vice presidential sweepstakes uh, that he's put himself into, uh, it's really quite a web he has woven because, number one, he put himself into a corner because he, he identified gender, number one. Uh, but secondly, as you look at you, these candidates, so the standard is they're ready to govern from day one. I don't think anyone on the list is really ready to take over the presidency. They all need work. But each one has kind of a flag. And that might be part of the reason why this is being dragged out, Tim, because the more you dig into each one and some of them are digging dirt on the others, just something pops up. It's Fidel Castro. It's hanging out with Antifa. It's uh, you know uh, Kamala Harris, our, our senator from California. She accepted money from Trump when she's attorney general. I think that'd be problematic with Democratic voters. So just each one has a, each one has a concern. Yeah, I, I actually thought Karen Bass might might have been very strong, um, and I, I I think it's a shame that you can't say something nice at a person's funeral uh, yeah. and, and without it being you know guilt by association. And so even though I was making a, a joke at her expense, you know she I think she said something nice about Fidel Castro upon his death. You know, it just calling him the Commandante Al Jefe, I think it was. That that was probably one bridge too far. But um, you know, it's a it's a shame. I think the VP stakes are fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um and I don't know what he does. I think you're right. He's in a box. We could run through the candidates, <coughs> but to me, the slint, if I were helping him advise, I'd, I want to know your pick after this. I think Tammy Duckworth is amazing. Um, veteran, uh, lost her both legs in combat um, for the United States. She actually has a Thai background, so a woman of color, but uh, takes America to a new definition. It's not a binary black-white conversation. It's a multicultural conversation. Boy, she's strong. And so I, I don't know if he'll pick her, but I think she'd be uh, formidable. 
He's also the only uh, U.S. senator to give birth, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's that distinction, too. Uh, so, Tim, I, uh, so I, I'm fascinated by baseball, and I spend way too much time studying baseball. And when I go to Las Vegas, I make baseball bets that are always flawed because I overthink the situation. And I'm very much the same on Veep Stakes since I swim in this stuff for a living. But I actually landed on Duckworth, too, uh, for all the reasons you mentioned, but one other. And my thinking is from the Biden campaign, I'm just looking for kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. And one more thing for the president to say to lose voters. And I think Donald Trump, given the opportunity to say something derogatory about um, Tammy Duckworth having lost her legs in the service to her country or having given birth at age 50, it's just almost too tempting for him to go to a bad place, as he did say with the gold star father. John. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'd kind of think mischievously that way, but I don't know. But um, my final thought on this, you know, in 2016, your Tim Kaine was picked by Hillary uh, for two reasons. One, he was just impossibly safe and bland. Uh, they thought it short Virginia, but secondly, he was bilingual, so they thought he could go out and speak Spanish and appeal to the immigrant voters. So, final question: We'll close out here. Tim, do you see the Democratic ticket, especially the running mate, making a big push to the immigrant voter, the immigrant population? Well, I think Duckworth would more than anybody. It would be, it would be, and I and I don't know her the background and her story and her family it, it, perfectly, but I think it really does change the um, conversation. Asian Americans have gone from uh, fewer than 1% of the nation, I think it's in 1970, to nearly 6% today. Right. Um, and that number is surging. So they may end up being the largest uh, minority group to the extent that we can keep track of these things because my children are what they call multiracial. I, I think we're all one human race personally, Bill. But yeah, I, I think it's going to be an exciting um 10, 20, 30 years we're heading into, and immigration is going to be part of the conversation uh, at the American identity as it has been forever, and, and but, but louder now than it has been maybe for the last 20, 30 years. And Tim, when you look at Trump's poll numbers with Latinos, they haven't really moved that much in, in this roller coaster ride of the last four years, have they? There are a lot of conservative uh, Latino Americans. You know, they're, they don't look, most Americans just don't identify themselves by their race. Mm -hmm. They identify themselves by their religion, their values, their children, their sports, their cars. Um, it's not as central to identity as you, you hear on MSNBC. And so, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all that Trump actually has some really strong support among every um, so-called so minority group. Okay, Tim, when's the book coming out? Well, that I haven't finished writing, Bill. So well, let's say that for the next podcast, but it, it will be the, at least six to 12 months. Okay, looking forward to it. And let's do this again once uh, we've got the election solved out and we can talk more about where to go forward on this topic that doesn't seem to go away, does it? Thank you, my friend. No, it doesn't. We'll always have it. This is evergreen. Okay, Tim, take care. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, I encourage you to sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, most certainly including Tim Kaine, straight to your inbox weekdays. You can find the Hoover Institution online at Facebook and on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst, that's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Tim Kane is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Timmer Kane. Again, that's at Timmer Kane, T-I-M-M-E-R-K-A-N-E, -E, at Timmer Kane. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care, stay safe, stay strong, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you soon. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. 
where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.